Welcome to That's the Word, Wholesome Tales for the Whole Family. I'm Father James Yamauchi. Today's story, based on the true story. The boy and his father watched the movie quietly. A few of the characters are joking it up. Then one made a comment, and all fell silent. Both the boy and his father knew what happened next. One of the older, grizzled characters related slowly and ominously a tale of a disaster and how he lived through it, a terrible, tragic moment filled with horror and forever sealed into his memory. The boy had heard the story before, but for some reason, this time, he truly listened. When the scene was over, the boy stood up and asked his dad, Is that a true story? Yes, the dad replied, and please move from in front of the TV. Tell me more about it, the boy said. I do not know too much about that disaster, said the boy's father, other than it is a true story. If you want to know more, I will take you to the library and you can check out a book on it. The boy already knew that was what his father would say. But he welcomed it this time. He was looking for a history fair project and he thought this disaster would make a great one. The father had to do some research at the university library, so one day he took his son along. The father took the boy down to the proper section of the library, pulled out a large stack of books, showed him how to use the index, and put a legal pad on the table. He said, I am going upstairs to do my research. While I am gone, go through these books and write down summaries of what you find. In an hour, I will come back and we will discuss what you learned. An hour later, the father returned to see only four or five lines written on the pad. The father disappointed, asked his son, What have you been doing for the last hour? There's almost nothing in any of these books about the disaster, the boy responded. The father was skeptical, certain the boy had just slacked off. He sat down with the books to show the boy how research was done. After a while, the father told the boy, Something's wrong. Why was this major disaster not thoroughly discussed in the history books? The father and son went and searched through more books, newspapers, and even the internet, but they could not find any substantial information on the disaster. The boy was disheartened, but he remembered 
that his history teacher had said a valuable source of historical information is from interviews with people who had been present for an event. He put an ad in the local paper to locate any survivors from the disaster. One of the survivors answered his ad and gave him the names of other survivors. He contacted them all and asked them questions about the incident, about their part in it, and about what happened to them over those days. As he talked with these men, one theme seemed to come up consistently. The blame for the disaster had been placed entirely on the shoulders of their leader. The men, however, knew that to be unjust. Their leader was not responsible. And, in fact, the people who had blamed him were the ones who were responsible for the disaster that unfolded. The boy's history project swept the school and county fairs. His was by far the best presentation that the judges had ever seen. At the state level, he was disqualified on a technicality. But a friend from church asked to display the boy's project in his office. A reporter heard about the project from that office and wrote a story on it. The story spread like wildfire through the media. Suddenly, the boy was being interviewed by all sorts of news outlets, both in print and on television. He got to visit the capital and met with some of the most powerful men in the country. The survivors of the disaster cheered him on. This boy, with his History Fair project, did more in a few months than they were able to do in the last few decades to exonerate their leader. Together, the boy, these men, and their allies in Washington were able to finally set the record straight and exonerate a man who, through no fault of his own, had to live through an excruciating five days at sea with his men. For the next two decades, this leader had to live with many of the families of those who died, believing that he had killed their sons. In the end, he committed suicide. Captain Charles McVeigh III had been the scapegoat for the terrible loss of life when a Japanese submarine sunk the USS Indianapolis, sending her 1,195 men into the water. And the Navy did not notice that the ship was missing. It was five days before a pilot accidentally discovered the remaining 316 men who had not died from exposure or been eaten by sharks. These men who remained worked hard to clear their captain's name for decades, but they only got the media attention they needed to push for a resolution of Congress when an 11-year-old boy named Hunter Scott entered his school history fair with a project on the USS Indianapolis. After hearing the ship mentioned in a short scene, 
from his father's favorite movie, Jaws. And for this week, that's the word. We have an exciting afterword to share, but we also want to forewarn if you have not listened to Court Martial Clemency, which was released on April 7, 2021, we urge you to do so before listening to the following. John Peter, when you and I started this podcast at the end of 2020, I don't think either of us would have foreseen how fascinating it is to do research about these stories and also learning about areas that affect the stories from a larger context. It's just been very fascinating doing the research. I know you have enjoyed that. Absolutely. And it's fascinating when we dive into a story and there is actually another story that's more interesting perhaps than the original one. In this case, we were actually not even looking into that. We were putting together the story extras for the story, which is typically a process of finding pictures of the key people involved and some of the key things involved. And that was for court martial clemency when we stumbled across this much larger, broader, more intricate, and really fascinating story of the crew of the USS Indianapolis and her captain. And there are so many things to unpack here. We can't do it all in this few minutes that we have with the afterward, but what is the resource that we found that can help if people want more information? The book that we use primarily for the details in the story, it's a book called Left for Dead. I do not know who it's written by. We will have it linked in the story extras. You probably can find it at your local library. I found it actually through our library's ebook service, which was really nice because I could get it instantly. For me, what's most fascinating is someone's history fair project. I remember doing my science fair project when I was a kid and being very proud of the fact, since I wanted to be a meteorologist growing up, that I was able to come up with a formula with the help of my dad's engineering and mathematic background for the number of hurricanes and tropical storms. And I still, to this day, think to myself, hey, that was an awesome project. That was very unique. But it's so small compared to what this young man did that had an impact on a whole crew and especially their captain. It's amazing what somebody, it is special because this young man did a ton of research, Hunter Scott. He did a ton of research and really good research by going to the survivors. We actually mentioned in the story that his project got disqualified at the state level based on a technicality. And that technicality was he had too many notebooks on his desk or on the display laid out of all these testimonies from these survivors, which wasn't allowed. So the technicality was he had too much information. In a way, yes, you can say that. It's rather funny. When he had heard these stories, he really wanted to help the cause of exonerating Captain McVeigh. And the fact that he was a young man who had done so much research captured the media interest. And that's really what propelled the story to enough national attention to where Congress actually made some action. And basically exonerated the captain. So what are some of the details that we can share with the audience about why this was covered up? So the big issue with this incident with the USS Indianapolis, it wasn't so much the ship got sunk. 
it was the fact that the men who survived were left for five days in shark-infested waters, dying, just sitting there, and no one knew that they were out there. No one recognized that they hadn't come into port, even though they were supposed to arrive at the port the day after the ship was sunk. Mm -hmm. So it should have immediately, even if there was no distress signal, there should have been some rescue missions launched to go and fight these guys. Because where is this ship with 1,200 men on it? That was the really big issue because of the 1,200 men that went into the water. I think approximately 300 died in the actual sinking and then 300 survived. So that leaves another approximately 600 men, 500, 600 men who died because they were not rescued. That was the big scandal of the USS Indianapolis. Now, what the Navy wanted to do was they wanted to draw attention away from that. And they wanted to have a scapegoat for what happened. So Captain McVeigh was the chosen scapegoat. He actually even is quoted as saying, it's for the good of the Navy after his trial. There were two things he was charged with. It was failing to zigzag and failing to send out a distress signal. The failure to zigzag was something that was semi-standard practice for evading submarines. And most people agreed that it really didn't work, including the expert witness the prosecution brought and the submarine captain who had sunk the USS Indianapolis, the Japanese sub-captain. He understood enough English to know that they were not translating him correctly, but they didn't listen to him. And just as a reminder from our previous story, they, to your point, that they actually brought, after the war, the Japanese submarine commander to actually testify at this court-martial trial. Exactly. So the other one, which he was not convicted of, but was still part of the proceedings, was failure to send the SOS signal. And one of the issues was that, well, no one received the SOS signal. After Hunter Scott did his project and it got media attention, he actually received information from three different people who were in three different radio rooms during the war in the Pacific, they had all three received the SOS signal. One of them went to the commanding officer and the commanding officer said, eh, let me know if they call again. And he also raked up alcohol. The second one, they said, well, they didn't confirm that they were sinking. So it must be a Japanese trick. They expected a response, I guess, from the ship that already sunk to let them know, yes, we are actually sinking. The SOS was not just a fluke. The third person who received the SOS actually sent out rescue ships, but the commanding officer of the place, he was at cards and left instructions to not be disturbed. When he came back, he was so upset that he wasn't consulted that he ordered the ships back. And so there's a scandal involving a whole lot of different people. It was a combination of many different factors of negligence and just bad protocol that led to this uh, tragedy happening. There were probably seven or eight different points at which this could all have been averted. And rather than addressing those points, the Navy chose instead to court-martial Captain McVeigh and then just not punish him afterwards. Because if somebody had acted, there would have still been the loss of the USS Indianapolis 
and there would still have been loss of life, but not the scale that we experienced. Because think about that, five days in shark-infested waters. I mean, that's amazing. And with no sign of anybody helping. And we also have to remember that the USS Indianapolis went down real fast. So at least for one of the scenarios where they say, well, we need to have another signal, there was barely enough time to just put out one SOS, let alone multiple ones, because how long was it? Do you remember the USS? It was like 12 minutes, 18 minutes, something like that. I think it was 12 minutes. And I think they were having problems at that point, even receiving messages. So they couldn't confirm. They, they didn't know that anyone had heard them when they sent it out. They were just sending out messages as fast as they could. And one last thing we want to bring up is that there are some unsung heroes among the men of the USS Indianapolis. We won't get into all of them. We mentioned the book that you can look at, but one individual we want to point out is Father Thomas Conway. Father Thomas Conway was a chaplain aboard the USS Indianapolis. He survived the sinking during the time when they were floating in the water. He would go from group to group, swing back and forth, encouraging the men, praying with them, administering the sacraments, and bringing men back into the groups who are floating out there. There are a lot of men like him who went and swam out to grab individuals and bring them back so that they were floating with the group. Many of those men did not survive. They would swim out and be attacked by a shark at some point. Father Thomas Conway disappeared after three days and lost the sea. So at some point in that five-day ordeal, he succumbed to the sea. But during that time, he ministered to many men and demonstrated great heroism in that great adversity. And we're looking at an article online that was written about Father Conway. It was just released in 2021, and it talks about how he was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. So fascinating story. Who would have ever thought that from a child watching a movie with his father by Steven Spielberg, that we would have the light shown on this incident, this tragedy, and know the truth of the matter and be able to acknowledge it. It just shows you that the simplest things can go a long way if we do it with all our heart, mind, and soul, as this young boy did, to uncover the truth. I don't know about you, Father, but Hunter Scott really inspires me when we're doing research on That's the Word, for me to go and make sure that whatever we're telling in these stories to just dig that much more deeper and do that much more research whenever bringing any story to you all. It's absolutely true. I don't know if in our earlier episode where we talked about the story from last week, if we mentioned it, but there's a lot of times where you hear stories about things and stories get passed down and down. And sometimes there's embellishments and sometimes there's different layers added to it. But uh, the amazing thing is when you get down to the, the, just the truth, the kernel of truth of the story, that's the most fascinating thing. And Would you agree that when we do these stories, a lot of times people may be, and we ourselves may be familiar with it, but it has been embellished in some ways or just over time, and that's part of human nature with telling stories. But to be able to go back to the truth of the matter, it's actually very fascinating. With the more recent stories that we've done, I think almost every story, we've entered it with some idea of what happened in the story and then learned that part of that or the whole of it 
was entirely accurate. So it's happening pretty much on every single story that you hear. If you enjoy That's the Word, please share the word. You can see the story extras for this story based on a true story at thunderrock.org, where you can see the scene from Jaws that inspired Hunter Scott, as well as pictures of the people involved in the story and the information on the book Left for Dead. Thunderrock.org is also where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter and where you can find our social links and our email if you have any feedback or story ideas. Thanks for listening and join us next Wednesday for another wholesome tale for the whole family.